fairly new colleague of mine at Calvin College. Uh, Dr. Carolyn Anderson has, is beginning her third year of teaching at Calvin College. She received her PhD in organic chemistry at the University of California, Irvine, and then did a postdoctoral fellow, a fellowship as a Dreyfus Fellow at Pomona College before coming to Calvin College. She's been a wonderful addition to our faculty, and she's going to be speaking on Perspectives on Gender Issues Within the Chemical Sciences. Please join me in welcoming Carolyn. Thanks, bud. Um, can everyone hear? Everyone here? First, I'd just like to thank you for the invitation and the opportunity to share with you some of my thoughts on what's going on in chemistry specifically. And as um, Jennifer has let off, there will be some, some overlap in what we have to say and some um, statistics that are, are related. But certainly there are perspectives within chemistry that are going to be different than what you've seen so far in astronomy. I just want to start with sort of our call to arms or our goal. And uh, Professor Donna Sh uh, Shalila, who's currently the, prof uh, the president of the University of Miami, she's the former U.S. Um, Secretary of Health and Human Services was speaking to the U.S. House of Representatives last October and stated to them that faculty, university leaders, professional and scientific societies, federal agencies, and the federal government need to unite to ensure that all of our nation's people are welcomed and encouraged to excel in science and engineering in our research universities. Now, that's a high call, um, and it's really an important call that we hear her for chemistry then is how are we doing? Are we in fact encouraging all of our people to continue on Fifty-two percent, more than half of bachelor's degrees in the sciences were being awarded. Sorry, in chemistry, were being awarded to women. You'll see a similar increase as we go from masters, um, from twenty-eight percent to forty-nine percent, and you'll notice that there has been a significant increase in the number of PhDs in chemistry that are being awarded to women, sixteen percent to thirty-six percent. I would draw your attention to the fact that. In the PhD ranks, we seem to be hitting a bit of a plateau. In the years from 2001 to 2006, we've seen only a very small increase. And in fact, we may be getting to a point where this is about steady state. That may be about as good as it's going to get. That's sort of a little better than a third of PhDs in chemistry going to women. Now, that's quite a substantial increase. Um, but I would like to draw your attention to the fact, um, to what the professorate, in fact, looks like. In, these, are, these are numbers at the top 50 research universities. 50 research universities determined by the National Science Foundation based on total and externally funded research in chemistry. And if you look at the numbers between 2000 and 2007, what you find is that at all ranks, we're actually increasing within the professorate. And that is fairly encouraging. We're moving up in chemistry faculties from only 10% in 2000 to 15% in 2007. And this increase, in fact, correlates well with the increase we see at the full professor rank as that number is increasing. And that happens, of course, because associate professors are advancing to being full professors. Assistant professors are advancing to be associate professors. What's disturbing in these numbers is the fact that both the associate and the assistant professor ranks have been stagnant for the entire duration of the numbers up there between about 20 and 22 percent. Now, if you remember, 52 percent of female, of P, sorry, of bachelor's degrees in chemistry are being awarded to women as of 2006. 36% of PhDs in chemistry are being awarded to women as of 2006. 
as of 2001, we had 34%. So by the time we see these numbers, these should be reflective of the numbers of PhDs that are being awarded to women in the chemical sciences. What you'll see is that they're not. They're not even close. And the fact that these numbers stay the same suggests that we, in fact, have a ceiling on this at this point, that there's going to have to be some significant change in order to get the percentage of women who are, in fact, achieving their PhDs to going on to the professorate to be an evenly matched value. Now, just so you don't think this only is the case at um, the top 50 research universities, if we look at the next segment of research universities, we find that these numbers match almost spot on. We can look at other types of institutions. Some of these are doing a bit better. At the primarily undergraduate institutions, we find that this is, well, this number is a little misleading. Uh, these are tenure track, new tenure track science, um, broadly defined hires. In the 1980s, only 21% of these hires were women. Now we're seeing in the 1990s that 40% are women. So we are seeing an increase in these ranks. But again, we can't split this out for chemistry, so the numbers aren't completely comparable. If we do a quick search of Christian institutions of higher education, I picked 15 um, just, today, just a couple days ago, and did a quick survey of the chemistry department at, they're listed down here, these 15 Christian institutions of higher education. Um, if I look at those chemistry departments, about 18% of those departments, if I count generously, seem to be made up of women. So we're a little better, but not much. Um, but I would caution you in these numbers. Because about 40% of these institutions, 6 out of 15, in fact, had no women on their faculties whatsoever. Now, these faculties ranged in size from only two faculty members up to six. So certainly, if you only have two faculty members, perhaps that's more understandable than if you have six faculty members. So the schools who are, in fact, doing this with larger departments and are doing this reasonably well are, in fact, doing it reasonably well. And those schools that um, haven't begun to tackle this issue are, in fact, doing particularly poorly. Now, it's not just academics where we find these types of ceilings existing. Uh, at the 42 largest publicly traded chemical companies as of 2006, we see the same kinds of statistics in the upper echelons. We find that only 12% of people serving on the boards of directors are, in fact, women, and even a smaller 9.2% of those serving in what are termed executive offices are women. So this is a problem across the chemical sciences, be it industrially or um, academically. And so most of the numbers I'll give you are, in fact, academics, just, but th they should hold pretty true. So there are two major theories of this leaky pipeline, this idea that we're losing women at sort of every stage of the game. The first theory is that women simply choose to leave chemistry and science for presumably less demanding jobs. Science is hard, so they just leave. The other theory is that there's an accumulation of disadvantage that's occurring that's forcing women out of the sciences and out of chemistry in particular. Now, the reality is that we're likely somewhere in between. Likely, women aren't making choices to specifically leave without some form of hostile environment that they're encountering. And probably the hostile environment isn't so much that alone it's pushing them out. But there's probably some mix of these in which there are choices being made based on the environment that women are experiencing. OK, so what does it mean to have an accumulation of advantage or disadvantage? Virginia Valens speaks of it this way. She says, like interest on capital, advantages accrue. And like interest on debt, disadvantages also accumulate. Very small differences in treatment can, as they pile up, result in large disparities in salary, promotion, and prestige. It's unfair to neglect even minor instances of group-based bias because they add up to major inequalities. In other words, what she's saying is that even very, very small um, disparities between how men and women are treated can, in fact, add up over time to make for major differences in the environments for those two populations. So how do we know 
that advantage, sorry, the disadvantage is actually accumulating. We can do this in a statistical way. We can calculate a yield. For example, of the number of bachelor's degrees awarded, how many of those people go on to earn their PhDs? If, in fact, we are in a society where men and women should be equally able to do that, our yield should be equal for men and women. And we can compare that by looking at the parity value. By simply dividing the percentage or the yield of women versus the yield of men in chemistry, we should be able to see how close we are. If we compare all PhD granting institutions with regards to chemistry, what we find is that we're not doing particularly well. The yield of women is less than half, okay, 47%. The yield of men is a little better, but not great, and we find a parity value of 0.77. So it is significantly more challenging for a woman to complete her PhD in these schools than it is for men. Now, if we narrow the search a bit to the top um, 25 schools as determined by the National Research Council, we find that the numbers for both male and females, in fact, get better, as does the parity value. We begin to move towards one, but yet we're still below one. It's still not an equal playing field between men and women. And we can narrow that even one step further to find that as we get to even more elite institutions, the top 10 is determined by the National Research Council, that our numbers again grow, and we get, in fact, higher parity values yet. Now, what I need to draw your attention to is similar to what we saw in the statistics from the Christian schools, Christian Institutes of Higher Education. While the number is better for those top 10 institutions, the variance, even in that small subset, is tremendous. So there are some schools where you'd see a parity value of only 0.6 among those top 10, and some schools, like Cornell, where it's actually slightly easier to get your PhD if you're a woman, 1.04. So that statistic is, in fact, slightly misleading in that it really depends on what institution you're at within that, within that guise. Okay. So there are a variety of reasons one can think about disadvantage. One of the places that disadvantage comes from is simply from the small numbers of women that are already present in the professorate. This leads to a lack of role models for both graduate students and for young faculty. It also leads to a lack of female mentors. These um, lack of role models and mentors can lead to feelings of isolation. It's believed that you need 20% of a minority population, in this case females in a faculty, for the minority voice to be comfortably voiced. Okay? So for someone to voice a minority opinion comfortably, you need about 20% of any group to be that. At our top 100 research institutions, only 22 would meet that criteria. And finally, you end up with stereotyping based on these very small subset of women. So because people only encounter female scientists occasionally, those women set the precedent for both what people are going to think about what you're capable of, how you're going to react to situations, um, what you're going to be like, rather than having sort of experienced enough female chemists to know that there's broad variance in that group. So those are things that have to be overcome by both people who are going to mentor these students and these young faculty, as well as those young scientists themselves. And there are more subtle disadvantages. Let me paint a few pictures for you. For example, imagine a large research group. In a large research group, experimental, perhaps the primary investigator assigns a lab coordinator, a postdoctoral researcher, to manage the lab. That person's going to receive additional skills in terms of management and organization and how to run a research group. This person's always male. How about if your primary investigator has to organize lunches when speakers come to town? It's a lot of work. Just says, okay, you be in charge. I don't want to deal with it. That person happens to be male. 
that person's got a lot of things to do. They want the same handful of people to go all the time. They pick the same three or four. Those people happen to be male. In neither of those scenarios do you find anything malicious. Okay, nobody's trying not to include women. Nobody's trying overtly to rule them out. And yet you've, in fact, cut off all of the informal networking possibilities. All of that informal training is going to your male students. Okay? This is a place where conscientious effort needs to be applied in order to try to change these types of informal networking opportunities. How about this one? PI corrects both a male and a female graduate student simultaneously. Female graduate student breaks down in tears. Male graduate student blows them off. PI looks at the female graduate student and says, buck up. Science is hard. The mentor in this case has created a hostile environment for that woman, even if the words are identical. Okay? These are some of the subtle types of disadvantages that accumulate that one has to deal with when mentoring and thinking about different populations. Mentoring is not something that you can do the same for everybody. One final one. Attendance at a conference is necessary for career development. Young faculty member has little kids at home. Either she has to leave her kids at home, or she has to bring them and find daycare, or find daycare at home that's going to watch them when she's not around. This adds undue financial burden. It ends undue stress. And perhaps it's just easier not to go to the meeting at all. Okay? None of these are malicious. None of these, as their own, should be problematic. And yet, we find that we are slowly but surely accumulating a state of disadvantage. Okay? We're establishing a situation where it is more difficult for that woman than it is for her comparable male colleague. And we see that come out in the parity numbers. So one of the ways that I'm going to suggest to you that we can best combat disadvantages through mentoring. Okay? There are many, many studies that have shown that positive mentoring has a much more significant effect on women than it does on men. For example, in graduate school in one study, the chance of a woman finishing graduate school in chemistry rose from 60% to 100% if she had a positive mentor. We can see a similar type of um, improvement in early employment situations. Only 52% of women in the study reported having a positive or successful first employment experience without the presence of a mentor or in the presence of a negative mentoring situation. 100% of women with a positive mentoring experience said they had a successful first career um, situation where they were advanced, they felt they were growing, they were moving forward. What's noticeable about these statistics is that the effect on men is almost negligible. In the case of graduate school, mentoring has almost no effect. 75 versus 74% of males will complete graduate school with or without a mentor. In the case of a first job experience, it was slightly more prominent, 70% versus 83%. This is a huge disparity. Women are far, far more highly affected by the presence of a positive mentor. And this is unfortunate in certain ways because the number of women who get mentored is significantly less than the number of males who receive mentoring. In fact, in one study, we found that, or it was found that only 13.5% of women would self-report to having been mentored as an undergraduate, whereas nearly about 40% of males would report the same thing. In graduate school, it's a little better. Now we're up to 20% of women are getting some form of formal mentoring. But that compares to two-thirds of men. So not only do women benefit from mentoring more than men, but they're not getting that mentorship. So we have a huge disparity here that we're seeing in our parity numbers that I think could probably be pretty easily rectified if we were to pay attention to this mentoring type of situation. And it's one of those places where ASA may be most able to really impact this type of field. 
You've got lots of people who know a great deal about what you're doing and lots of young female scientists, specifically female Christian scientists, who could use a helping hand. This is a great place to think about inputting some form of program. But what one has to note about mentoring is a couple of things. One, mentoring is not simply being an academic advisor. That's part of it, but that's not enough. Mentoring is about investment in human capital. You are creating in someone else the ability to go forward. That is not simply technical skills, but that's networking. That's the ability to communicate with other people. It's the ability to know how and when to apply for grants or to write papers or who to talk to and who do you know. It's about having lunch with different people that you get to interact with. Mentoring is about investment in another individual. So I do want to quickly comment on some other things that have to be considered when dealing with um, female scientists. Uh, Jennifer commented on the balancing of family and career. And I want to just draw on this slightly again. The academic lifestyle, as it's sort of portrayed, is this rat race type of thing where long hours signify a um, commitment to the field, where publication and funding are not only potentially stressors, but they're required for tenure in most cases. Um, these things can be stressful to relationships, marriages, parenting, all of those types of things. And it begins to impact um, questions like, do I have children? And if I have them, when do I have them? And once I have them, who's going to watch them? And these are questions that perhaps many of you haven't thought thoroughly through because you haven't had to. But I'm an experimental chemist. And it's really crucial that I think about if and when I'm going to be pregnant and what impact that's going to have on my career, my family, and my trajectory. So I've done a lot of thinking about this, and there's some issues that come up. If you're going to have a baby during graduate school, is it going to be paid leave? And if so, who's going to pay that leave? It's not been until 2004 was the first major university to put in place a graduate maternity policy. MIT in 2004 put forward the first paid maternity policy for graduate students. Since then, Stanford and Princeton have followed, and they have been highly touted for doing so, but that's about it. So having a child during graduate school has certain financial implications, and certainly it has implications on how long it will take you to complete your degree. If you're not going to have a child during graduate school, maybe once you get your first academic position, but now you're in a pre-tenure case, and you have to ask the questions, how will being pregnant and having a child affect my getting tenure? Will there be consequences, either those that I see or those that are perceived? Will I be taken seriously by my colleagues if I have a child? You know, she's a mom now. I don't know, that whole science mom thing. Um, and I know of more stories than I can tell you of women having children either during their tenure year or immediately upon receiving tenure because of these types of concerns. Now, that brings up some other considerations here as well. Um, the first is that if you're waiting till after tenure to have children, you're talking about waiting until you're in your mid-30s. Okay? That's got its own biological and medical implications. Okay? The other thing is, is that you have to deal with the timing of things. So I'm a chemist. I'm an experimental chemist. And I'm exposed to chemicals all the time. So I'm not looking for colleagues to be flexible and willing to cover my courses and my labs and whatever else I might be doing during three months of maternity leave. I'm looking for them to cover and be willing to, to help me out for an entire year while I'm pregnant because I don't want my child exposed to the things that I've chosen to expose myself to. That is not an option that is viable to me, and I don't think it's an option that we should suggest is viable to anyone. And so there are real concerns about how do you conduct research? 
How do you supervise students? If your teaching obligations include teaching specifically um, undergraduate labs, how do you do those kinds of things? So there's things to consider here that are more, um, more crucial, perhaps, than, than we often consider. And the last thing I want to talk about is, in fact, this dual career couple thing. And my numbers are slightly different than Jennifer's. These are scientists in general, but they, they pose the same general idea. And that's the idea that 62% of married scientists who are female are married to another professional scientist, someone else who holds a doctorate, and only 19% of males are, is that the case. And that means that women are going to be constrained in some way by the career ambitions of their husband a lot of the time. Okay? This might be geographically. It might mean they have to locate in a large labor market so there are multiple opportunities. Um, often you'll have a spouse that has to trail the other. Sometimes it's the husband. Sometimes it's the wife who's doing the trailing. Um, sometimes there are shared positions or joint positions, um, but these come with their own sets of um, sacrifices that one makes. And this is, in fact, unfortunately most difficult when mobility is essential at the very beginning of course trajectory, where you're moving from graduate school to a postdoc, perhaps to another postdoc, to a first academic appointment, when it's most difficult for both people to be fully employed. And so you end up with a lot of underemployment. So what are the best practices that I would like to suggest? First, mentoring. Mentoring is key. If we can raise awareness as to what mentoring is, investing in other people, and what it isn't, simply academic advising, we can make a lot of strides in this, um, this area. And we have to deal with the fact that mentoring isn't a one-size-fits-all activity. One cannot mentor every man like every other man any more than someone can mentor every woman like every man. One has to understand that mentoring is an investment, and you have to know the person that you're mentoring. And I think initiating formal mentoring programs has a, the possibility to have real benefits specifically for um, females in science and females in chemistry. We need to be thinking about initiating family-friendly benefits on an institutional level. These are things like paid maternity leave, automatic tenure clock extensions for new parents, flexibility in teaching loads, um, daycare options that are close by, um, backup care for sick children, and helping trailing spouses get jobs, either by hiring couples together or finding some alternate means. So just to summarize what I've been telling you about, what I'm arguing for is not gender parity, but rather gender equity. What I want is not necessarily for the professorate to be half women. I actually don't think that that's viable, nor do I think it's necessarily a good idea. But what I am arguing for is that I want every woman or person of a minority stature to, who wants to pursue such a career not to have to overcome disadvantage to do so. That's what I'm looking for. And that's gender equity, not gender parity. And I'd like to argue that small changes make a big difference. Um, we can raise awareness of what types of small disadvantages are. If we can get rid of some of those small types of disadvantages, I think you'll see your numbers go way up because people's experiences will be significantly better. Um, we want to foster intentional mentoring relationships, and we want to strive to eliminate disadvantages. And this means very consciously paying attention to including women in formal and informal networking opportunities, um, in initiating family-friendly benefits, and in looking towards these types of mentoring issues. And with that, I would be happy to take any questions. I think we have time for a question or two. Keep your question short, please.
Finished PhDs. Finished PhDs, right. So does that include uh, people who, is that taking um, it's looking at people finishing their degrees. So if X number of people get their bachelor's degree, and of that same cohort, Y number of people get their PhDs, there's no reason to think, if everything is equal, that more, a higher percentage of males should be able to, to sort of make that conversion than females. So in other words, it should be just as hard for men to get their degree as women. So you should see a dropout rate that is equivalent for males as it is to females. Well, relative from PhD from bachelor's to PhD. So, you know, if you have a thousand people get their P, their bachelor's degree and only six hundred get their PhD, there's no reason that 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 difference should vary between gender. You should e see equal proportions of men dropping out and women dropping out or choosing other careers. Okay, one one last question. Oops. That's a really great question. And the data that I've seen suggests that a female mentor for a female young scientist is a better match than a, female, than a male scientist mentoring a female scientist, but that female sci young scientists will take whatever they can get. Um, so until we can get those numbers up, a good male mentor, most women will happily take that option. Okay, join me in uh, thanking Carolyn once again for a very nice presentation.